Here's another quote. James Montgomery Boyce said, there is even a sense in which the salt must dissolve if the flavor is to be released. And for this reason, God sometimes shakes the salt shaker, talking about the person or the church as a salt shaker, through persecutions so that the salt will fall out and let this happen. I'm going to continue his quote, but sometimes we hold on so tight to our salt. I've got to protect our salt, our truths, whatever it is you think you're protecting. And God gave them to you to affect other people. Why are you burying them in the ground? He has to take us through some kind of shaking to get the salt out of the shaker. That's how you get salt out of a shaker. You know, you got to shake it. If a church will not be salty, it just wants to treasure everything up and hoard it for their own sake, God will shake the salt shaker until it finally starts to shake out and affect what he wants to have affected. He goes on to say, I should add a fact that it's well known to the medical world. If a body does not give off salt through perspiration, what happens? It retains water and it becomes bloated. In the same way, the church will become bloated and desperately unhealthy if the salt is not dispersed in this work of preservation. Let me tell you what will happen to a church or a body of churches who refuses to share the truth of the word of God with this world, who is so insulated and insular that they've sealed the salt shaker. So no salt can get out to this world. No precious truths could possibly get out there the very place they're needed most. I'll tell you what'll happen. Listen to what he said. If you retain your salt, you become bloated. That's how people become so arrogant and bloated in their own self-esteem. But that bloating is a terrible thing. It's not a positive thing. The salt has to leave the body in order for it to be effective. And the balance of that salt has to be proper in the body, which means we have to have a certain amount in the body and a certain amount being released by the body to keep our balance of salt correct, which would lead into a whole lot more side issues if we got into that. A similar concept to the loss of a church's salt is found in the warning that Jesus gives that church of Ephesus about losing their first love that Brother Hanawalt led us to, Revelations 2.4. I'm not going to go into that in depth because I already touched on it, but I want to mention that one more time because he does give a solution. He doesn't just say, you've lost your first love and you're done, you're lost. If you stay in that state and become reprobate to where you don't want that love anymore, you have no desire for it, and no matter what happens, you'll never return to your first love, you would be reprobate. If you're a believer who once had that first love, because these have to be people that had it, you can't lose some you didn't have, right? So if you're a believer who once had that first love and you've lost your first love, there's only two directions you can go. You can either return to your first love or you can refuse to return to your first love. And if you get to the place, including as a believer who once had that first love, where there's nothing that God could ever do other than taking your will to cause you to ever return to your first love, then you're reprobate. Because how can he ever reach you unless he turns you into a robot? If there's nothing that could ever happen that would cause you to return. But Jesus does leave a way of escape from that condemnation. He gives very clear instruction in the very next verse. That was Revelation 2.4. Revelation 2.5, he tells you what to do if you lose it. Same thing would be true if you're starting to lose your saltiness or if you've lost your saltiness. He said, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. In other words, like an alcoholic, you have to recognize they're an alcoholic before they can ever really get any help. You've got to recognize I've left my first love. I've lost my saltiness and that's not good and I've got to get it back and repent, which means you turn to God and say, Lord, I'm sorry I've lost this. I'm sorry I don't have the love I should have for you and your people. I'm sorry I'm not salty like I should be. Will you help me, Lord? And then he says regarding your first love to do the first works. Well, we can get in a lot of detail on that. We talked about it sometime back when we went through these chapters in a Bible study. 
But let me just give you one example. And this would mean you'd have to do a little homework, depending on your situation. But what were the first things that made you salty? What was the first thing that made you love the Lord? What was going on in your mind and in your heart when you first began to grow in your love for God? That burst of love that came upon you. And then as it started to increase and you started to love him more, what was going on? What were you doing? What were you thinking about? This is one of the reasons why it's so important to recognize that there are sources we have to go to. You might say, well, I don't feel like going to church, but maybe that's where you found your first love. Go back to where you found your first love. You need to get back in church. Go to more services than you've been going to. Get more involved. Do all those things. Get back to the place where you were at, and it's more than just going to church. It's your state of mind. It's the feeling you have. It's your recognition of God's greatness and his love for you. Get back to that. But notice it doesn't just say, ask me to give you your first love back. That'd be nice if it was that easy, wouldn't it? Lord, just return my first love to me. And all of a sudden tomorrow I wake up just brimming with love. No, he said, do the first works, which means what were the things you were doing that brought you into a closer relationship with me? What were you doing when you felt closer to me? Were you praying more? Were you reading your Bible more? Were you thinking about me more? Were you talking about me more? Were you spending more time with my people? What were you doing when you were growing in your love for me? And again, I'm paralleling this with salt. We haven't left that subject. Same thing if you lose your saltiness. What made me salty? When did I really feel like I had that salt? What was going on? Where was I at? What was I thinking? What was I feeling? What was I doing? The different people I was talking to, what kind of people were they? You know, that'll help make you salty if you're around salty people. Well, wait a second. You know one of the things that's happened? I've started to spend a lot more time with worldly people. I started to spend a lot more time in worldly environments. I haven't been to church as often. I haven't been in the Word of God as often. I haven't been feeling the Spirit of God as consistently as I used to. Go back and do the first works. Some of those things may be works in ways you don't think they are, but they're work if you don't want to do them. You're saying, well, it's kind of a labor. I'm so comfortable with my carnal crowd. I'm sure you are. That's what carnality will do. It'll make you comfortable. Comfortable in your grave clothes is what you're getting comfortable in because that's what you're dressing up for is the grave if you're getting comfortable in a carnal environment. You got to get out of that carnal comfort zone. So what was I doing? Where was I at? And I mentioned people. People are important. What kind of people am I surrounding myself with? Are they salty people? You know one of the quickest ways you see people lose their salt? And let's take another parallel. Lose their good spirit is to spend time with people that don't have a good spirit. Spend time with people that aren't salty. You wonder, well, why am I getting so critical? I hope you can recognize this in yourself if it happens. I'm not thinking of anyone in our building tonight, all right? But we all have this potential. I hope if you start getting a critical spirit, you recognize that in yourself and say, wait a second, maybe you aren't even ready to ask why, but I feel like I'm more critical. I have a critical spirit. Well, what kind of people are you around? What kind of things are you letting go in your ears and into your heart? Are you spending time with people that are critical? And unfortunately, sometimes they'll even cauterize themselves to what's going on in church because they want to have something to criticize. They're not happy in their own heart. And the church could be in a wonderful place, but they aren't. There's something they're not happy with, so they get in a critical spirit. And then people in that state, God in heaven help you if you get in this state, unless you've got a godly reason to do it. If you've got a godly reason, you better be critical if there's something that needs to be corrected. If there's something ungodly going on, you should be critical about it. I'm using being critical as an example. There's lots of things you could put in here that would cause you to lose these things that we're talking about with your first love or your salt or your good spirit or other things. But God help us not to lose those things. If we have lost, as I started saying, or are losing our first love or our salty spirit, we have to first be willing to recognize that something's wrong. 
Most time people don't want to look in the mirror and say, you know what, something's not right in my spirit. You know, that's one of the best things you could ever do is look in the mirror, whether it's a natural mirror and you can see your puckered up expression or you're angry or irritated or just unapproachable look that's on your face, or if it's a spiritual mirror and you're looking in the Word of God and you're thinking, something's not right in my spirit. That's one of the healthiest things you could ever do is recognize that your spirit is not right. I'm losing my salt. I'm losing my first love. I'm losing the good spirit I had my positive feelings about the things of God. You've got to recognize that's what Jesus was referring to. And he said, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. It's just like the song, remind me where you brought me from and where I could have been. Look back, not only where he brought you from, but look back to where you were after he brought you out. Look back, not just the beginning in terms of how bad off you were, but look how well off you were when he brought you out of the deep miry clay. And now you're wanting to go back into that miry mental state Go back, look back. How did I feel when the Lord picked me up and pulled me out of the sucking grasp of that deep miry clay? How did I feel when I broke out and he set me on a solid rock and I felt a solid foundation under my feet and I was loosed from that condition that was binding me? What did it make me feel like? Lord, take me back. Take me back to the joy of my salvation. David knew the judgment he was under with what he did as Bathsheba. In one of the statements, he said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He recognized there'd been a fall and something had to be corrected. God help us to get back the joy of our salvation if we've lost something that will recognize it. I said, like an alcoholic, if you're an alcoholic, you gotta be able to recognize and admit to yourself that you're an alcoholic before you can make any progress of breaking free of that condition. And in our spiritual life, we have to be willing and able to see ourselves as we are, not in the light of our own sometimes overinflated, blindly biased, or even proud refusal to realistically assess ourselves, but in the light of the Word of God. And sometimes maybe even in the light of our brother. Sometimes it takes one individual to help shave off some of the elements of another individual. You know, as iron sharpeneth iron. So the countenance of a man, you know, sharpens the countenance of another man, his brother. Sometimes it takes another person to say, listen, and we have to be able to accept this. We have to be willing to give it in the right spirit, and we have to be willing to accept it in the right spirit. Both the giving and receiving of this has to be in the right spirit. And that is to give it, you have to be willing to say, I see my brother is struggling. He's not in the right spirit. He's losing his salt or he's losing his good spirit. He's losing his first love. I love him enough. I want to pull him aside and talk to him. He may not want me to, most time when people are in the wrong state of mind, they don't want to talk to you. And they do everything they can to avoid a conversation. And every time I got close to them, they turned and started going another direction. They looked off somewhere. They tried to start a conversation with somebody else because they knew in their heart there was something that needed to be dealt with, but they did not want it dealt with consciously or unconsciously. So they give you the cold shoulder or they walk away or something to avoid the conversation. I've watched ministers do it and saints do it as well. If you love somebody, do your best to reach out to them, even when they don't want to be reached out to. You have to do it in the right spirit, though, not in a condescending way, like you're above them, not in some kind of an arrogant way, but in love, in love, in love. Everything we do needs to be in love. And then the person, if they're gonna benefit from it, is going to have to be able to respond in the right spirit. They're gonna have to be able to say, you know what? I've gotta be humble enough that I can take correction or I can take direction. Maybe my brother is not trying to correct me. He's just trying to help me. He's trying to tell me, look, something's wrong with your spirit right now. You've got to get your spirit right. Something's wrong. This isn't good. It's not healthy. It's going to destroy your relationship with the Lord and his people for that matter. 
And you're going to have to be willing to accept that and do it in the right spirit. So once we break free of the bondage of our own self-inflicted and times even light-resistant blindness, we'll be able to see how far we've fallen. And if we sorrow over what we see, then that sorrow will lead to repentance. And then that will lead to the removal of whatever has to be removed that caused the sorrow. If it's some state of mind we had that needs to be put away, if it's some actions, whatever. And it will also lead to a hunger for those first works that were the expressions of our first love, for that state of saltiness. I want to be salty again. You have to have that hunger to want to get back to that place. If we don't make the corrections necessary to restore our first love, then the salty savor of our spiritual connection with God and the salty seasoning that we're intended to be in the world around us by sharing that salt will not only fail in its purpose, it will potentially cause us to lose our place as a child of God or as the people of God in this world. What this saltiness is talking about more than anything is distinctiveness, that we have to be different as the people of God from the world around us not separate in the sense that we don't touch them or let them get close to us or we don't let them hear the word of truth or we don't go out in the world trying to save people, but distinct, separate from sin, but not separate from sinners. Jesus was not separate from sinners. He was absolutely separate from sin though, wasn't he? He never sinned. He never did anything to make himself spiritually unclean. But he sat down to dinner with sinners, didn't he? He got rebuked for it. What are you doing sitting with these wretched individuals? It's because it's sin that's my enemy, not the sinner. See, the self-righteous make sinners the enemy as much as they do sin. But those that desire God's righteousness for themselves and for others make sin the enemy, not the sinner. So they're looking for the sinner in love, trying to get a hold of them and affect them in a positive way. They don't want to be affected by the sin. They certainly don't want to get involved in anything sinful, but they want to affect and help the sinner. Give you a few more quotes. Told you I was going to give you a number here in this last class we have on salt because I'm gathering up all the quotes that I've found through the years I thought were really good on this subject from a variety of authors. And as I say once in a while when I'm giving a lot of quotes, by no means do I agree with all the doctrine some of these men espouse. Some of them, I am vehemently, and I mean that as strong as I said it, opposed to some of their doctrines. That doesn't mean they didn't have certain truths and they didn't have certain insights and that God didn't touch their mind in certain areas that are worth repeating. And so I'm going to repeat those, but I want you to remember, as I say periodically when I'm giving a lot of quotes, that does not mean, and I'm definitely is the case with the one I'm about to quote, does not mean that I agree with their theology in all their areas. It just means that God gave them a piece of insight somewhere. John Stott stated that if Christians become assimilated to non-Christians and contaminated by the impurities of the world, they lose their influence. The influence of Christians in and on society depends on their being distinct, not identical. Too many churches in our modern world are trying to get as close to the world as they can with the idea that if we get close enough to them, they'll be comfortable enough to want to just make that small step from their carnal life into the church. It should not be a small step in terms of a spiritual step between the world and the church. It should be a very small step in terms of us making it easy for them to come to the church, but it should not be a small step in terms of us making it easier than God does to be in a relationship with him. You follow the difference? We should make them as welcome as possible, make it as easy as we can for people to hear the word of God, feel the spirit of God, come into the church if they've gotten to that place where they're feeling that drawing power to come into the church. But we cannot span the gap between man and God with anything less than what God spans that gap with. 
He spans that gap with his son, and they're going to have to accept his son, not on their terms, not on terms that are comfortable for them, but on his terms. He goes on to say, Dr. Lloyd-Jones emphasizes this, and he quotes him saying, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It's then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. Let me tell you something very powerful, if you didn't already get this point in that statement about how when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably, she, the church, invariably attracts it. When the church starts lowering its true standards of biblical holiness, starts compromising and adulterating its theological truths to try to reach the world, something is seriously wrong with the church. Some may say, well, the world is not responding to our truth, so we've got to make it more user-friendly, or we've got to change things up a little bit to make it more accessible, more comfortable for the world. You want to know why the world hasn't been responding to so many of the messages that are going on in the Christian or pseudo-Christian churches of this world? It's because they're not powerful enough. They're not holy enough. They're not high enough. And so because they're not high and holy and powerful and anointed and weighty enough, they aren't reaching them. So instead of going higher to try to reach the ones that are lower, they go lower to try to reach the ones that are lower. That sounds reasonable, doesn't it? If you want to reach someone that's lower, you got to lower yourself. Now, you might have to lower yourself to reach down, but I'm talking about lowering your standards of truth and morality and other things. No, invariably, as he said, the higher the church gets, the more magnetic the pull becomes. It's the opposite of what you think would happen. You'd think the further we get in terms of holiness, the more the world will reject us. Yes, and the more powerful the magnet will become, the harder it will pull on people. Knox Chamberlain explains that Jesus' language in Matthew 5.13 cautions us against so narrow an interpretation of salt that aspects of its meaning are omitted and against so complex an interpretation that the verse's primary lesson, which is salt's great usefulness and its potential uselessness, is obscured. He goes on to say, Jesus' followers are a preservative in a fallen world, a retardant against the sinful society's otherwise rapid decline and decay. If the disciples are to fulfill this calling, it is vital that their own identity be safeguarded, that they not lose their saltiness, that they live as the persons described in verses 3 to 12, and that they not allow the surrounding culture to squeeze them into its own mold. As salt flavors as well as preserves meat, disciples are also a seasoning for the world. Not only do they resist the culture's evils as Messiah's representatives in the world, they overcome evil with good, as you see in Romans 12, 21. Probably verbal testimony is especially in view to match the visible one of Matthew 5, 14 to 16. While their witness will evoke violent hostility from some, as in Matthew 5, 11 to 12, others will find it a life-giving savor. Let disciples beware lest they become tasteless the Greek word for tasteless, I mentioned this earlier, but I didn't talk about the Greek word. The Greek word for tasteless is morante. Does that sound anything like any of our modern English words? I'm going to pronounce it again. Morante. I just gave it to you, didn't I? Sounds like the word moron, doesn't it? Sometimes I talk about knuckleheaded people as morons, and my wife gets a little sensitive to that and worried that people will think I'm being offensive to folks that don't have the higher intelligent level, which is not at all what I'm thinking. I'm talking about people that are morons by choice, not by birth, people that are morons by their actions and their words. I'll try to cease and desist from calling people that, even if they might deserve it, but there's a good biblical reason because that's where we get this word from. The word morante is to be tasteless, 
It actually means in its root to become foolish. The word he's translating to be tasteless here comes from a root that means to become foolish. And that gets into some very deep things. He goes on to say, when disciples fail to embody and impart the wisdom Jesus has built into them, they cease to attract and influence non-believers. Indeed, as the foolish, and perhaps as those desperate to restore their appeal and influence, they may become bearers of cultural evil and peddlers of false teaching. And there he's referring to Matthew 7, 15 to 20. Building on his last point, there is another aspect to the way that salt was understood symbolically by the Jews that I think adds even another layer to this. Ben Witherington III explains that it was not uncommon in later rabbinic literature to use the metaphor of salt to refer to wisdom. In other words, if someone has salt, there's someone that has wisdom. He goes on to say, which seems to explain the use of the verb maranthe, a word that literally means to grow foolish or by extrapolation to become insipid. Salt that loses its saltiness is good for nothing. Or to put it in sapiential terms, a disciple who loses his wisdom grows foolish. As the first evangelist puts it, and he's referring to Jesus as the first evangelist, it is good for nothing but to be thrown out into the street, which is normally where the refuse went in that culture. Many scholars have wanted to argue that salt cannot lose its savor, but this is not quite true. Impure salt, that's what we talked about earlier, dug from the deposits of the Dead Sea could in fact lose its properties as the sodium chloride dissolved or evaporated. There was furthermore probably a sapiential play on words here in the Aramaic because tabel, that means salt, and tapel in Aramaic, T-A-B-E-L and T-A-P-E-L, means foolish. So that's why those words are so similar. He goes on to say, Jesus was making a play on words, not offering a chemistry lesson. The point is this, if a disciple ceases to function in the one capacity in which he or she is truly valuable, namely bearing witness to the world by word and deed, then that disciple is worthless, fit only to be cast out. If Jesus was making a play on words in the Aramaic, this could express the idea that when our salt is adulterated by impure or even unnecessary additives, we'll become foolish in our relationship to the world and in our interaction with them. We will look foolish. If we have a salty scriptural basis for our beliefs and everything we believe is based on this pure seed that's the word of God, and then we start adding things to this, we will make the salt impure and just as Jesus may have meant in this play on words, we'll make ourselves look foolish because someone will say, well, why do you believe that? Why do you do that? And you don't have anything to go to. When one of the members of your church asks you to explain why you have a certain standard that you have absolutely no basis whatsoever for in the Bible and is actually the opposite of the Bible, something has gone wrong in what has led to the teaching of that standard. The same thing would be true of any belief, a doctrinal belief, some practice. If you say, well, why do you do that? If you can't go back to the word of the living God, then you will lose your saltiness because it's this that gives us our saltiness. When this word is alive in us, the seed of this word makes us salty and we lose our saltiness and become foolish by adding our own thoughts and ideas and interpretations and man-made additions. So God in heaven help us. Additions and addendums to God's word are not harmless. You might think, well, what's the big deal? It is a big deal because when you add things to God's word that are not in God's word, you give people requirements or you create practices or come up with strange doctrinal teachings that are not in the Bible that you cannot prove by any clear statement of the Bible and some of which absolutely contradict the Bible. You are creating a very dangerous precedent because you're teaching people, if they accept that foolishness, you're teaching people that it is acceptable to add to God's word. We don't have to depend on God's word being the foundation. We can just create our own. 
That is an exceptionally dangerous thing to do. We are going to have to come to the place where we realize what created the Babylonish church was not sin and corruption. Those things entered into that church in a terrible scale as they entered into the Middle Ages, especially. But it was not sin and corruption that created that church. It was the addition of man-made ideas, practices, and standards that they brought into that church that had no biblical basis that corrupted that church and created the Babylonish church. And if we are not careful, we will do the very same things. We will have pure salt that God gave us, but we're so determined to make the salt taste better than God made it that we start adding our own additives and the salt loses its saltiness. But it creates a new taste and we get used to that new taste and they say, this is the taste we want to taste. And what you may not even realize is it's not the original at all. And it's slowly losing its true saltiness because it's not based on the saltiness that comes from the scripture alone. That'd get me in another subject as well that I've been pounding on my bully pulpit about for a while. So I'm not going to do that. There is one final question that really merits asking regarding our potential loss of saltiness. And Alexander McLaren does a good job of asking it. So I'm going to read a quote from him. He says, is there a possibility of re-salting the saltless salt, of restoring the lost savor? If the church is meant for the purifying of the world and the church itself needs purifying, is there any power in the world that will do it? If the army joins the rebels, is there any force that will bring back the army to submission? Our Lord is speaking about ordinary means and agencies. He's saying, in effect, if the one thing that's intended to preserve the meat loses its power, is there anything lying about that will salt that? So far, then, the answer seems to be no. But Christ has no intention that these words should be pushed to the extreme of asserting that if salt loses its savor, if a man loses the pungency of his Christian life, he can never win it back by going again to the source from which he received it at first. That's the going back to our first love. There is no such implication in these words. There is no obstacle in the way of a penitent returning to the fountain of all power and purity, nor of the full restoration of the lost savor, if a man will only bring about a full reunion of himself with the source of that savor. He goes on to say, Dear brethren, the message is to each of us. The same pleading words which the apocalyptic seer heard from heaven come to you and me. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. And all the savor and the sweetness that flow from fellowship with Jesus Christ will come back to us in larger measure. That brings us back full circle to Jesus' statements in Revelation 2, 4 to 5 regarding the loss of our first love. I was paralleling with us losing our salt in a similar type of way. If we sense that we might be losing the love or the saltiness that that love is intended to produce in us, we have to seek to correct that condition as quickly and as comprehensively as possible. We have to repent for being less salty than we should be. We've got to seek out the source of our spiritual salt, and we have to strive with all our strength to be restored to the most salty state possible. Regarding these statements about salt in Matthew 5.13 and the statements we're going to get into in our next classes about light that are Matthew 5.14 to 16, I'm going to end this class with a quote from MacArthur, who I've told you is an example of somebody who I have very strong differences with doctrinally, but who has some of the most beautiful insights into some pieces and parts of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to close with his quote. He said, in these four verses, he's talking about the verses on salt here and the ones on light we're going to get into. In these four verses, the Lord summarizes the function of believers in the world reduced to one word. That function is influence. 
Whoever lives according to the Beatitudes that immediately preceded these verses is going to function in the world as salt and light. Christian character, consciously or unconsciously, affects other people for better or for worse. Elihu Burritt wrote, It is an old saying and one of the fearful and fathomless statements of import that we are forming characters for eternity. Forming characters? Whose? Our own or others? Both. And in that momentous fact lies the peril and responsibility of our existence. The sunlight of that world, the world to come that they will resurrect into, will reveal my finger marks in their primary formations and in their successive strata of thought and life. That is why it is so critical that we be salt and light.